Thank you for the prayers. And thank you all who shared about how God is at work. It's always super encouraging just to get those snapshots and your testimonies of faithfulness. Uh, We've been talking about the gospel for the last several months, weeks, from the book of Galatians. And so what you're sharing is the work of the gospel, the reason that we would do anything, the reason we would get involved in going to Haiti or working with open house ministries or concern for our families, concern for friends who have not been walking with the Lord, even as our own past reflect that, is all about the gospel, the good news that Jesus saves us from what we deserve. And that's really great news. We're uh, in Galatians chapter 3, moving into chapter 4, and looking at this question this morning. So imagine an incredibly wealthy and perfectly good father. Just imagine that for a second. Perfectly good father, amazingly wealthy father. If you could choose, would you rather be a slave in his household or a son? Now, we don't deal much with slave topics in our country. Thank the Lord that that's not so much something that we deal with in the culture of the Middle East and Galatians and Roman Empire at that time. Lots to do with slavery. And the choice there would be, if you don't get your inheritance, you almost inevitably are going to become a slave. So if you're going to choose whether to be a slave or a son to a wealthy father who is really good, who's perfectly good, there is no such father except for God. Uh, but the choice would be pretty easy. Be a son, because that's where your inheritance comes from, among other reasons. So what Paul's been doing here in, in Galatians is he is working hard to wean them off of these false teachers that were saying that in addition to faith in Christ you needed to keep or live by the law. In order to be fully acceptable, in order to be a top-notch Christian, you needed to keep the law. The law that God had originally revealed. Or, uh, in, if you're not thinking of that in religious terms, explicitly biblical terms, it's anything that we do that we think is going to earn us favor or manipulate God to get what we want. And so what Paul is saying to the Galatians is, be alert, don't revert. Be alert, don't revert. Don't revert to the law because that's very inferior. So last week we saw that um, Paul was saying, well, what's the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law was temporary. It was a temporary um, revelation of God that showed God's people their need for a Savior that was to lead them to their only hope, which could be in Christ the fulfillment of the promise. So the promise was permanent, the promise made to Abraham that God would would bless all the nations through him, Jew and Gentile alike. And we see that Paul's recognized that the blessing that was originally promised to Abraham fulfilled in Christ becomes this. It's the gift of righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ and it's the gift of the Holy Spirit that gives us new life. That is the blessing of Abraham fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So Paul's saying, why would you trade that righteousness that comes from Christ, his own righteousness, and the life that comes from the power of the Holy Spirit alone for a temporary uh, provision that God made that was a picture of the reality to come. Why would you trade the, the uh, sonship for slave, slavery? And that's what we're going to look at today. So we'll look at uh, verses 26 of chapter 3 to verse 7 of chapter 4. 
And I think we'll have that up on the screen, but I'm going to start reading of just a few verses back, uh, verse 23 of chapter 3 and on through verse 7 of chapter 4. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. And this is today's text, starting with verse 26. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you all are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. May God help us to grasp and apply the his word by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that verse 26, chapter 3, is answering this question, why does the law no longer serve as a prison guard? That was one imagery that he gave in the last text. Or a guardian. It's because now we are sons of God through faith in Christ. That's what he says in verse 26. The reason the law no longer is that temporary uh, holding tank, that temporary guardian, the temporary prison warden, is because... We are now sons of God through faith in Christ. That's incredible, to be a son of the living God. If we understand we did not deserve that at all and we did not have that in our reality whatsoever, that the only way we could become a son of God is by faith in Christ alone. I'm going to use that terminology, son, because whether you're male or female, the imagery then was the son was the, in that culture in that time, was the inheritor. He was the one that stood to receive the inheritance. So to be a son of God, we'll just, we're just going to keep that terminology, even though you might think, well, son, I'm a daughter of God, true. But uh, the son of, a son of God is keeping in, in keeping with the terminology that made sense in the day. In verse 27, then, we see him saying, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So baptism in the New Testament implies a radical personal commitment to a decisive no to one's former way of life, and yes to Jesus Christ. And it's also a confession that the only way that that happens is by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, trusting in Him to save me by His grace alone, through faith alone, in Him alone. And baptism says, I believe that, and I'm ready to follow Him. I'm coming out and identifying myself with Him. To put on Christ means without Him, we stand in the nakedness of sin, so we're baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. That's clothes putting on language, clothing putting on language. 
We stand in the nakedness of our own efforts or our sin to cover ourselves with religion or morality or significance. Our own efforts don't work. Only what Christ covers us with, his righteousness, is uh, what identifies us with him and makes us sons of God. That's why Paul mentions baptism at this point. Because they have clothed themselves with Christ. Christ is the team uniform. Christ is their identification. He is who they're identified with. As diverse as the Christ community is, and I'm going to be using that word Christ community or community of Christ rather than the the term church just so that we can think more specifically about the significance of what it is to be the church because Paul's talking about being uh, identified not just with Christ but with the community of Christ, the people of Christ. So as diverse as the Christ community is or the church is, as we'll see in the next verse, Christ is what unites them. The Galatians have a new identity in Christ and in the community of Christ. And that's what he's saying in verse 28. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. Now, what we need to say about this text is it's a wonderful, great text. We need to observe that in this verse, Paul is speaking about relationships within the church or the community of Christ. He says that in Christ there are no longer divisions... No more divisions based upon ethnicity or race and culture, based upon socioeconomic status or whether you're slave or free, and gender. Being in Christ gave equal status between groups that in both Jewish and Gentile cultures were not viewed as having equal status, not remotely. For example, a traditional prayer for a Jewish man went something like this. I thank you, O Lord our God, that you have not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. How's that for, don't, I don't recommend that for your, your prayer life, but that is how many prayed in that day. Or even the Gentiles in their pagan way, the, the culturally Greek guys often thank the gods for allowing them to be born as humans, not beasts. All right, I'm grateful to be a human, not a beast. Uh, Greeks and not barbarians, citizens and not slaves, or men and not women. So you can see that Paul's picked these key categories of which there was great prejudice and great division between these groups. What Paul was not saying is that all cultural and role distinctions were bad and needed to be changed. He said you are all one in Christ. He didn't say you're all the same in Christ. So we know from Genesis that God made man, male and female, in his image. That is the basis for equality of of all races, of those of different socioeconomic status, and all genders. But sin corrupted and distorted how people relate to each other in these differences. And we don't know what it's like, totally anyway, to, to uh, live apart from the corrupt version of, of the, the differences. We only know the sin-wrecked, sin-ruined version of the, div- the divisions between uh, different races and, um, and different genders and different people of so- different socioeconomic statuses. So the worlds of these divisions include demanding rights and trying to make everyone the same. Paul's solution is that the corruption, the hostility, the prejudice, and abusiveness that is in these opposing parties is resolved in Christ. We are made one in Christ. Now, as soon as I say that, we have to confess how horribly we have gotten this wrong, often even within confessing Christian groups, churches. Uh, Over the centuries, we've not done so well at always being recognizing and valuing the differences between races, socioeconomic classes, and genders. 
But we know that we live in this in-between time of the already. Already this is true. Not yet is it there in full. And we long for that day when all of the divisions and prejudices between these groups will be resolved. Uh, we could do tons better. Not, I'm sure we could at Harvest, just at church communities. In every nation, we have a hard time overcoming these barriers between these groups. But it is the privilege we have in Christ to at least pursue what Jesus has saved us into, what he has freed us for. And among other things, he's freed us for unity and oneness between races, genders, and socioeconomic groups. So what Paul said of race and culture, Paul was not saying that Greeks needed to become culturally Jewish. That's huge. He was absolutely teaching against that. No, you don't have to become Jews or no, nor do Jews need to become Greeks. It's not a matter of changing your culture. It's a matter of being in Christ. The community of Christ includes all races, ethnicities, and cultures. Paul wasn't calling for a monoculture. There is no race that God favors over another. All races and ethnics are equally in need of Christ. We have equal need of Christ, and in Christ we are all equal, and we are all one. Not the same, but one in Christ. Or whether we're slave or free. Now, uh, in our society, thankfully, slavery has been largely done away with. There's still elements of that. But uh, as throughout much of human history since the fall, slavery existed in the Roman Empire. In this passage, Paul is not making any statement about the morality of slavery in the Roman Empire at that time. He's just saying, given that these, there are people who are slaves, uh, this is what you need to know. He's making a much more radical point. In Christ, and thus in the Roman Empire, uh, you, in, in the, I'm sorry, in Christ and in the community of Christ, whether you were a slave or free person, both had equal status. Both had equal standing before God. Both are equally acceptable to God. This was a super radical concept in that culture and time. Uh, people became slaves mainly for economic reasons. If you didn't get your inheritance or if you were born into a poor family, um, most likely you became a slave. And so Paul is saying you're one whether you're slave or free. In uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he said, if you became a Christian while you were a slave, don't think your highest form of freedom is becoming a free person. If you can get physically free, go for it, Paul said. But even if you don't get free, uh, know that the Lord saved you as a slave and you are his free person. You are free in Christ. Now, the most direct application for us in, in American culture would be um, socioeconomic differences should not divide us, for in Christ we are one. Those of upper income should not look down on those of lower income, and those of lower income should not be resentful of those with higher income. And we don't take that for granted that we have that one down. So we need to keep pursuing our oneness in Christ and view people from Christ's perspective. And then finally, Paul talks about male and female. In Christ, male and female are one. In that culture and in that time, to say that men and women were equal was probably more radical than saying slaves and free were equal. Um, women were often degraded and devalued, as they still are in many cultures today. We might not say that we've got it all down in this culture, but in some cultures it's a lot more blatant than here. What Paul is saying is that in the community of Christ, men and women have the same access and acceptance with God. 
equal value, equally sons of God, yes, sons and daughters, but in the terminology of this culture and text, directly uh, stand in, in line of the inheritance of the promise of God's people, male and female, absolutely have no distinction in that privilege. Um, men and women are different. That may be the most amazing thing I've said all, all morning. Men and women are different. And so God doesn't say the ideal is to one androgynous gender. Be fully male, be fully female, but in Christ you're one. Paul's point is there's no second-class genders in the community of Christ. God does not favor one gender over another. Right? Well, women may have a little bit of upper hand in that because there's more women tend to be Christ followers than men, but no. That's wrong. It, there's absolutely no difference in value of men and women. We're equal, equal in Christ and we're one in Christ. Equally stand in line for inheriting uh, the promises of God through Jesus. And so that's where Paul goes in verse 29. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So just to review very quickly, God's promise of blessing to Abraham was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It was by types and shadows before Christ, and it led to the fulfillment in Christ. What The way it comes to us today is, as we've already said, Righteousness before God and new life in Christ. Righteousness before God in Christ and new life in Christ by the Spirit. That is what the, the inheritance that we get from Christ looks like today. That's Abraham's promise fulfilled in Christ for us. So, Paul says, and if you are Christ, if you belong to him, then you are Abraham's offspring. That means you directly inherit the promised Christ-fulfilled blessing because Christ has removed all barriers between you and God and made you his son, whether you're Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. Now, in verses 22 and 20 through 25 of chapter 3, Paul related the purpose of the law as being like a prison warden that confines and like a child guardian who disciplines until the one confined or the child under the discipline of the guardian had the maturity to live in the freedom of adulthood. The life of mature freedom Paul uh, likened to living by faith in Christ. In other words, the law had a supervisory role until Christ fulfilled the law and the promise. So here in verse 1 of chapter 4, he gives us another image. He gives us another analogy to illustrate the contrast between living under the constraints of the law and the mature freedom of life in Christ. So in verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, I mean, what do you mean, Paul? Let me tell you what I mean. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is owner of everything. An heir may stand to inherit a lot of money, property, furniture, jewelry, probably junk of all kinds, The children don't have the experience, wisdom, or maturity to handle their inheritance. So, parents don't give them access to the inherited wealth while they're still young. They appoint uh, a guardian. In terms of the Greco-Roman culture, the child was no different from a slave. In that, he doesn't have the access and freedom to use his inheritance. If he receives it, if the parent dies, he doesn't have the access and freedom to receive and use the wealth. And as a child, he doesn't have the maturity to manage the assets. Yet, as Paul says, he is technically the owner of everything. But, 
Um, in verse 2, Paul says he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So in your will, you write, when the child becomes 18 or whatever age or 20 or 26 or maybe 40 if they're just really not getting it at all, um, <clears throat> then they're going to be under the care, provision, and supervision of guardians and managers until he reaches a certain age as determined by the father. The child is under the control of others until he's free to access and wisely use the wealth he will inherit. So that's Paul's image. That's the analogy he's giving. In verse 3, then, Paul says, In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So Paul says, Just as the child who is an heir is like a slave until he reaches maturity, when we were children, that is, when we were under the law, We were like slaves to the elementary principles of the world. What are the elementary principles of the world? Not leaders of elementary schools. Literally, the term meant elements that make up a series of things. So that came used, for example, the alphabet. ABCs, simple principles, basic principles of early learning, came to be related to that, came to refer to the elements that make up the material world. And uh, so here, the elementary principles of the world, Paul is referring to being under the control and management of the law. The law was good in its temporary purpose until Christ came, but it was meant to convict of sin and point beyond itself with symbols and foreshadowing types until Christ fulfilled them. The law itself could not set a person free from sin and give you a direct relationship with God. In that sense, the law was just worldly elementary principles or worldly religion. It's religious effort, self-effort, that makes sense to the world. We so naturally gravitate toward self-effort and and our own uh, versions of spirituality to invent how do we gain significance before God or if we don't even reference God before people or before ourselves. That makes sense to us. So the law became like the elementary principles of the world. Worldly religion is another way to put it. Just world uh, acceptable religion. That's be good, be moral, don't do these things, follow these steps, offer these sacrifices, uh, follow these rituals, and so on. Uh, So the elementary principles of the world enslave. They don't make free. They cannot set us free. They can't free us from sin. They can't free us to become God's sons. They keep us in check. They hold us in uh, infancy or childhood stage spiritually. They're not, and they cannot save. Another uh, way to think of the law being like an elementary principle of the world is like an orphanage. It's good for temporary solution, but not good if you stay, accept the orphanage, or prefer it as normal. And so Paul... Um, Well, just a comment there. I read a book uh, adopted for life by a guy named Russell. And Russell Moore. And he was talking about how when he adopted a couple kids from a, a Russian orphanage, how they, when they first were getting ready to leave the orphanage, began crying for their home. They preferred the orphanage, even though they were happy to have a father, but they didn't know what it was like to have a father. So for them, it was hard for them to leave the orphanage. They actually preferred it in those early stages. And so that's how we can be, by, by coming under the law, rather than 
salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But Paul says, when the fullness of time had come, in verse 4, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. In God's sovereign and wise timing, when the law had served its purpose and he had arranged the time for the prophecies concerning Christ to be fulfilled, God sent forth his son. His son, who already existed as equal with God, the son of God, God himself, and he sent forth to be born of a woman. So he took on a human nature. That's what it means. Be born of a woman means he became a human being. Not merely a human being, but in addition to being son of God, now also a human being. And being born as a Jew, he was born under the law. But unlike anyone else ever born, he perfectly obeyed the law. And so he was qualified as son of God and as a human, true human, actually obeying the law perfectly. In verse 5, Paul says, he, he did this to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption of sons. So Jesus was qualified to redeem those under the law because he was God's son and because in his humanity he perfectly kept the law. And back in verse 13 of chapter 3, we saw that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Christ became a curse for us means he took God's just punishment and judgment upon himself for all of our rebellion against and rejection of and ignoring of God's law. And he did this not only so we would have to not have to endure God's judgment, but with the positive goal that we might receive adoption as sons. That is, literally, we would receive sonship. Massive things that had to be done for us to become sons of God. It wasn't any, just no big deal, just come on in. He, Jesus, had to become a curse that we deserve in our place. And in extinguishing the curse because of his righteousness, he exchanged his righteousness for our unrighteousness and his life through the power of the Holy Spirit for our deadness so that we could become God's sons. Adoption was a common practice in the Greco-Roman world, the Greek-slash-Roman world. The most famous example was Julius Caesar's adoption of Octavius, who later succeeded him as emperor, Caesar Augustus. Now, the Galatians would have appreciated very well being chosen and adopted into God's family, given their former devotion to false gods, many of them. Some of them were of Jewish background. Many of them were of pagan backgrounds. So those of Jewish background, as in their history, they, they could relate to being redeemed from slavery in Egypt as God's son. Out of Egypt, God called his son, he says in the scripture. So those who have adopted children sometimes experience comments something like this. We've not adopted any kids, but I understand that sometimes you'll hear comments that are not wise and not helpful, such as, don't you want children of your own? Or don't you wish you had children of your own? Or too bad you couldn't have children of your own? Now, of course, when they say children of your own, what they're referring to is having biologically related, biologically produced kids of your own. Comments like these imply that the only reason a couple would adopt is if they can't biologically have kids together. Now, it's not wrong to desire to have your own biological kids. That's normal, natural. Many of us get the privilege to do that. I think we can still call it a privilege, right? No matter how thick it gets. Uh, It's not wrong to have that desire or to do it, nor is it wrong to have been led to adopt because of fertility problems. That's not wrong either. The point is, when you adopt children, they are your own. 
They are every bit as much your own as if they were your biologically produced kids. They are your kids. You love them because you have chosen them and made them your own, though they are not biologically related. And so, scripturally speaking, there's no higher status we could receive than to be the sons of God. There's no greater love God could express to us than to adopt us as his own children, his own sons. He paid the ultimate adoption price, the price of his son's life, when we deserve to remain slaves and worse. And you might say to God, God, don't you want children of your own? The only child ever exactly of his own, who shared his very nature and who never deserved anything different, was Jesus Christ. It's through him that we become his children only. Russell Moore, who wrote the book Adopted for Life, talks about the two boys he adopted in, in, uh, from a Russian orphanage. Their, names were, their Russian names were um, Maxim and Sergei. Through the adoption process, they had given them new names, Benjamin and Timothy. Even though f- when they did their last visit before actually being able to claim them, they knew for weeks they'd still be called by their old names, yet... Um, Russell Moore knew that they had selected and they had chosen a new identity for them. And that's exactly what God does for us. He chooses us and puts a new identity, provides a new identity for us as part of his family. So in verses 6 and 7, if we all had what, if all we had was a new status as sons of God, We would be lacking in a heart that loved God and related to him as Father. That was a huge part of our problem in the first place, right? That we didn't love God and we felt free to sin against him or just didn't even care about sin at all. And so we didn't love God. But God has only not only granted us a new status as sons by the redeeming work of his son, Jesus, because of that son status, it's like adoption papers for us, He has given us the spirit of his son so that we begin to take on the family likeness. So uh, the adopted sons of of Russell Moore's family, uh, Benjamin and Timothy, had to grow into their new identity. And they they needed to learn how to trust their father. He said, I knew they had become my, they were uh, buying into the new identity when they quit hiding their food, when they began to trust that we were going to keep feeding them. And where they weren't afraid of me when I approached them, they, they began to really recognize this is my father and I can trust him. It's a battle for us to grow into who we are in Christ. Even though it's freely given to us, we don't easily put on our identity. And, we, and, and so God gives us his Holy Spirit so that we begin to call upon him as father. That's what he says in verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, Similar to what Paul says in Romans 8, I don't have that up on the screen, but Romans 8, verses 15 and 16. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So the Holy Spirit, here Paul calls him the Spirit of God's Son, is the sign and pledge of our adoption so that by his presence in our hearts we are truly convinced that God is for us, not against us, that he is truly our Father. 
He does this by pointing us again and again to who we are in Christ. And one of the ways it shows up is we cry out to God and call him Father. Uh, Russell Moore wrote of the eerie silence of the orphanage because the orphans had gotten so accustomed to crying and calling out, nobody answers, so they just quit crying. They quit making any noise whatsoever. And so another sign that he began to recognize these sons are becoming more and more identified with, as my sons is when they begin to cry for their father. Abba is the Aramaic term for father. It's what a child would call his or her daddy. It's, it is a term of intimacy, but the way it gets used in Scripture is not this passive, sort of fuzzy, warm, kind of tranquil, snuggle up in the lap kind of thing. It's always crying. It's a it's shout. Paul says here we cry, we literally shout, Abba, Father. In fact, one of the first places we see it show up in the New Testament is Jesus crying out in the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane before he went to the cross. Abba, Father, let this cup of suffering pass from me, yet not my will but yours. And so it's a cry, it's a desperate cry of trust, but, but of pain as well. Because, have you noticed this life is kind of painful? Have you noticed that even as Christians, we still have massive struggle with sin? And we live in a lot of imperfection and a lot of mess. There's good testimony that comes out of it, but it's a messed up world that we live in. And so when we cry out, Abba, Father... We shout out in desperate longing for our Father. When we are suffering, when we're sad, when we're in trouble, when we're in temptation, when we're discouraged, when we're depressed or confused or crushed with the weight of life, or when we feel abandoned, facing spiritual battles. Am I hitting anything yet? I mean, has anybody had any of these these things happen within the last year or day. That's a great time to cry out to Abba, our Father, to cry out, to shout out to Him in desperate dependence. We, we cry out to Him when we're facing family divisions or addictions or betrayals. And we pray for His already but not yet kingdom to come in full through the spread of the gospel to lost family and friends and unreached peoples until His Son Jesus returns. You know, We sure don't look much like sons of God. But by faith, we keep embracing again and again and again our identity. We have the identity gifted to us. We have the spirit gifted to us. We just have to keep, by faith and grace, pursuing who we already are in Christ. It's not becoming something we're not. It's living out who we are. And part of that identity is, God, I'm so desperate. I can't do this without you. I need Jesus. Lots of good praying comes that way. I mean, that should be most of our prayers because... We, we lack wisdom. We don't have the strength. We, things aren't the way they're supposed to be, and we cry out. To, we don't want to get numb to, to life, whether in the, the macro things going on in the world in the big scale or our own lives. We don't want to get used to being in the orphanage and just say, well, there's nothing we can do. We'll just get quiet. Don't let that happen. Keep crying out to God. Keep, let that desperation just grow and increase. So a big takeaway from this, let's pray like that. Let's pray in holy desperation and desperate desperation. Because Jesus is for us. Jesus has made us his sons. We're to cry out to God. Therefore, that's what Paul says in verse 7. So you are no longer a slave that doesn't have any rights to appeal to the Father, but a son. And if a son, then you are an heir through God. We've got good stuff coming. We've got great stuff in our inheritance, but right now we're partially there. We've got a massive way to go. So therefore, because God sent his son who took on a human nature and redeem me from the curse of the law, 
providing me a right status before God and sent the spirit of his son into my heart so that I have a new life and now relate to God as father, I am no longer a slave. Gary Smith is not a slave. I may act like one sometimes, but I'm not. I'm a son. Everybody who is in Christ here, you are not a slave. You, You are a son of the living God through Jesus Christ. And because of that, I don't need worldly religious effort or self-made spirituality or any other sinful pursuits. I have the freedom, I have the power to overcome. I am a son of God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I am the heir of the resurrection, Christ's kingdom of righteousness, the new heavens and the new earth. Let's just close with that thought. Let's pray. Let's be ready also to receive an offering for the work of God's kingdom. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Oh, God. Thank you for rescuing us from the judgment we deserve. Thank you for rescuing us from slavery to worldly religion or our own self-effort or anything else that was not Jesus Christ. Jesus, would you recognize, would you help us to recognize how desperate our condition is? Instead of getting more and more numb to the world, to the things we struggle with, may we be more alive to who you are and the difference between the already and the not yet. Already we are sons of God, but not yet do we fully live that out ourselves, nor are we in that world yet. So we long, Father, to be more and more who we are, freedom in Christ, regardless of our circumstances. As your sons, you have not abandoned us no matter what we're going through. We know we belong to you. We can cry out to you as Abba, Father. Father, thank you so much for these people who have taken their time to be here today to worship and call upon your name together. Thank you for the way you provide what we need to do your will, to do your pleasure. Part of that involves, Father, how your church family gives. So thank you, Father, for the way that you have laid it on our hearts to give to the work that you have called us to this morning of building up your people, preaching the gospel, living out the gospel, people of all ages, stages, economic groups, genders, races. Oh, God, thank you that even though we haven't yet seen it fully lived out, we truly have a unity and diversity because we're all one in Christ. So thank you, Father, for giving us that gift. Thank you for the gifts you've entrusted to us. Would you multiply the effectiveness of these financial gifts for the sake of spreading this good news of the gospel? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.